It's something for nothing. The Rush fan cast, Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, we have not done this in a while. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. Life got in the way. Why is that, Steve? Uh, maybe because I got COVID. Could that be the reason? Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> you caught a highly infectious disease. I forgot about that. Oh, that's all. That's all. It was mild, though, thankfully. I thought it was just the holidays getting in the way. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, you can find us at the Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. We like it when you do that. The bass intro and outro, that's Lex. He's the best. And Jerry, I hope you have an email to get us started. I'm excited for your email today. I do. I have an email from a guy named Joe. Hey, Joe. And he wrote in about our interview with Andrus Pohn. Oh, cool. He said, I'm not a religious guy, but do consider myself very spiritual. I believe God, the universe, karma, whatever, wants us to experience joy, happiness, and a sense of fulfillment. That being said, I really believe the universe wanted me to hear this episode with Andrus Pone today. About two and a half years ago, I walked away from a successful teaching career to build my own coaching practice using improv. Then the pandemic hit. It killed any momentum I had developed. I almost gave up on my dream and returned to teaching or the business world, yet I found I just couldn't. Not yet. Rush has been there to prop me up many times in my life, and this was just yet another example. Since nearly quitting on my dream, I've refocused and am now just beginning to reap those rewards. Listening to Mr. Pone today, I again realized how much influence Rush has had on my life and the important lessons, much like in today's podcast. I listened on my way to teach my second college course, one that fits with my big dream and using improv to improve communication and collaboration skills. Listening to Mr. Pone and his lessons from Rush inspired me and encouraged me to continue believing in my dream and building this business. Thank you for the serendipitous moment. It made my day and only encourages me to overcome any challenges 2022 may bring. That was from Joe. That's awesome, Joe. Thanks for the email. We got a lot of great feedback from the Andrus Pone episode. We did. Yeah, people were quite inspired by Andrus being inspired. Yeah, he was very inspiring. And that's one of the lessons he talked about was be inspirational. Yeah, be inspirational. That's right. And he certainly was. And speaking of emails, Mm -hmm. a few people emailed me to point out that the uh, guitar solo in Chain Lightning, if you remember, Steve, we talked about Alex's guitar solos. Right. That the guitar solo in Chain Lightning was actually recorded backwards. So what you hear on the recording is a backwards guitar solo. This is just showing my age here because I do remember us talking about that when we talked about Chain Lightning. And how did we forget that it was backwards? How did we do that? I don't remember that at all. Were you sure? Did you go back and listen to an episode? Oh, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> But I could have sworn we talked about it, or maybe I read it somewhere and I just forgot that I read it somewhere and the email you sent me just reminded me. I don't know. I don't remember it at all. So I was surprised when I read these emails. But we also got an email from someone whose email we read previously, uh, someone named Brian. He was the one who joked that he wouldn't buy us lunch if we were in his town. All right. He said he was too cheap. Yeah. He said he was just joking, by the way, he says in this email. But he said, you know, that. It's definitely a backwards guitar solo. And he sent us an audio clip of the song being played backwards so you can hear the actual guitar solo as it was played. All right, well, let's play it right now. Here it is. Now, Jared, that explains why the guitar solo is so crazy, because it's backwards. But it also is a testament to Alex's prowess, because I didn't realize it. It sounds like, it sounds yeah. like a normal Alex guitar solo to me. <laughs> well, he must have planned it out, though. I mean, he's usually spontaneous, but he must have thought about what it might sound like backwards, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are definitely backwards guitar solos. There are a couple on Beatles albums but they sound backwards. Do you know what I mean? Like they sound weird and they sound backwards. This solo does not sound weird to me. Well, it sounds weird, but it doesn't sound backwards weird, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's what I mean. It certainly doesn't sound 
like something Alex wouldn't do normally. It's brilliant, really. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of brilliant, Jer, we don't usually have current news on this podcast. You know that. That's very true. But Alex Lifeson's new band, Envy of None, released their first single this past Wednesday, on your birthday, of all things. On my birthday. What a birthday gift. What a birthday gift. It's called Liar, and it is amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. Now, I've talked to a bunch of people about this. What does it remind you of? I would say late 90s alternative is where I'd put it in my mind. Sure. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds reasonable. I, was, I wasn't really placing it anywhere, truthfully. What would you call it? Would you call it industrial? Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. You know, there's so many different subgenres. You could call it hypnotic industrial. How about that? Yes. <laughs> Did I just make up a new <laughs> subgenre of music? But Maya Wynn's vocals are, are just fantastic. I know I use that word a lot, but I'm going to use it again. Yeah, it, the whole thing is, is stellar from beginning to end. Have you ever heard the band Ivy? They're a late 90s band. The vocalist sounds a lot like Maya. I would say it's a cross between Ivy and Nine Inch Nails. Okay, I think you gave me an Ivy album. I'm not sure if I ever really gave it its due. You don't listen to anything I give you, Jared, do you? <laughs> I really don't take recommendations. I don't know why. Anyway, we spoke to Andy Curran on episode 101 of this podcast, if you want to hear more about Envy of None. And then a few episodes later, Jer, we spoke to Maya Wynn. Yes. And she was also incredible. Yeah, I thought that was a really good episode. It was. She was episode 103. And hopefully we'll have Andy and Maya back at a later date. Yeah, I hope so. I just can't wait for the rest of the album. It's supposedly eclectic, so I'm curious to see what else what other kind of magic there is on that album. Well, I'm sure it's going to be great. Yeah, we still have a few months to go, though. So April. We'll have to bide our time. So, Jer, today on the Rush Fancast, you know we like to listen to other podcasts. We love to listen to other podcasts, actually. That's true. And one of the podcasts we love to listen to is called Playlist Wars. And we're lucky enough to have the co-host of Playlist Wars with us today, Brian Colburn. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you so much for having me on, gentlemen. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. We'd like to start by asking our guest, Brian, their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? I became a fan of Rush when I was about kindergarten. I idolized my cousins growing up, and my cousin had, in the early 1980s, had the big stereo in his room with the floor standing speakers. And I would go in there with, at the time, you know, kindergarten and younger, I'd bring my Muppet records in and my chipmunk (laughs) records in. And he'd be like, that's fine. We'd play those. And he'd be like, now it's my turn to pick an album. And he would put on ACDC's Highway to Hell and he would put on moving pictures. And that was how I got introduced to Rush. So at the age of kindergarten, five, six years old, I was already enjoying Tom Sawyer and YYZ and songs like that. So it was definitely interesting where some kids were still singing the wheels on the bus. And here (laughs) I am listening to progressive rock. And it's kind of stuck with me through the years. I've kind of woven rush through all the music I listened to throughout the years because everybody goes through musical phases. And I was fortunate enough, and I say fortunate, I lived through the MTV phase where music videos kind of dictated what you listen to. I lived through the hair band and hair metal phase, which a lot of people make fun of, but there is so much talent that kind of resonated through that hair band phase that I think is truly underrated people because of the frizz and the hair being three feet high, they overlook the fact that there's some incredible musicianship in that. And then when everything got stripped back in the early 90s to live through the grunge era and to live through new metal and rap rock and whatever they want to call hard rock now, because it's taken on so many different. I feel like I'm blessed to have lived through so many great eras of music. And the thing I like about Rush is they've been able to weave themselves in and out of all of these eras seamlessly. And that is something that a lot of bands in the 80s tried and failed to do, especially when the Phil Collins overproduction 
of the eighties, his, the kind of sheen that he put on, he's a hell of a producer, a hell of a musician, but when he produced an album, you knew it. And you think about Eric Clapton's behind the sun and you think about how it just felt a little out of place for Eric Clapton Rush's albums in the eighties, while they did have a little bit more of the eighties sheen and a little bit more keyboards and a little bit more synthesizer still felt perfectly in place with the band's catalog. And that is a hard thing to do to maintain your musical integrity, but also evolve with the changing times. That's something that has always impressed me about this band. And we've tried to get to the kernel of that many times as to why they've been able to do that. Do you have any insight into that? Oh man, I wish I did. It, it, it is probably the luck of the draw because I feel that as a band, they stayed true to who they were. They never put out the Rush dubstep album. They never, (laughs) you know, they never did Rush MTV Unplugged. They stayed true to their music. It was progressive. It was hard rock. Yes, they had elements of acoustic and they had elements of keyboards and synthesizer. But at the core of it, it was the three gentlemen creating great music together. And that stuck. They didn't go through phases. They just kind of stayed the same. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Whereas their sound evolved, but it didn't evolve to the point where people were going, what? It evolved. I don't want to use softly because that's not the right word, but it ebbed and flowed in a way where true diehard Rush fans could accept it. But people that were experiencing them for the first time, let's say, presto or you know show me don't tell me when that video was on mtv there was a way that that was fitting in to whatever was being played on mtv at the time and that's not easy to do and somehow they were able to tow that water and and thread that line so perfectly through the decades which is a testament to how talented they are so brian tell us about your podcast playlist wars what's the premise and where did the idea originate Playlist Wars started back in March of 2021. I was with a podcast for several years at that point that was kind of reaching the end of its run. And Gomez, my co-host, has been my best friend for several decades. I had this idea for a podcast that I pitched to him. And it's a very simple concept, but it's fascinating in execution. Not not saying that we're fascinating people, saying that (laughs) The dialogue that comes from the show as a music nerd myself is fascinating. For each episode, we pick a topic, either a band, an artist, or an album. And we create a playlist based on that topic, band, or album. The album one is a four-song playlist that's based on a 10-song, 20-song album. And then the other episodes, if it's on an artist, band, or topic, those are 10 songs. And we don't share the playlist with each other in advance. We just each create what we feel best represents that topic. Then we go through the playlists one by one, track one, track two, track three, and we kind of fill in a grid and we fill in our playlists and we discuss why we chose the songs in the sequence we did, why they're important to the playlist and why they're important to the topic at hand. And The dialogue that comes from that to me as a musician and a music fan is fascinating. But the best part is we let our listeners vote and decide which one of the three of us properly represented that band topic or album the best way. So who, quote unquote, got it right. And then every 10 episodes, we reveal the quote unquote winners of each episode. So it is a competition, but it's a subjective one because we're giving our subjective opinions on an artist, and then the listeners are chiming in with their opinions on our opinions. And it just kind of sees where people sit because certain bands, if you go in and you drop the greatest hits, you've won the episode hands down. And other episodes, if you go in with the greatest hits, you're not getting a single vote because people want to hear the deep cuts. People want to hear, hear you kind of dig a little bit. So it's, it's a fun, fascinating concept that we've been having a blast with over the last year. And yeah, we're looking forward to continuing doing it as we've been uh, growing the show. You know, one of the interesting things about your podcast is just the breadth of musical styles and types of music that you cover. 
I mean, you do like ska and then punk and you recently did a Christmas songs, right? You did like a, was it a wrestling themed songs? I mean, where are you getting all of this musical knowledge from? I mean, you, you hinted at it a little bit about just growing up in a certain age, but Steve and I grew up in the same time and I don't think that we'd be able to hold down the fort on all of these different episodes. When I was growing up, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, when all the kids, when my parents would take me to the mall, all the kids would go to the toy store. I wanted nothing to do with the toy store. I wanted to go to the record store. I wanted to go to Sam Goody and Record Town. I lived up in North Jersey, so I wanted to go to the, you know, the Garden State Plaza at the time had both a Record Town and a Sam Goody in it. So that was like the mothership for me. And then if you left the parking lot, you were able to go to Nobody Beats the Wiz as well. And that was on top of the indie music stores going. So I would just go and scroll and listen to the music playing in the store and ask questions. And the teenagers at the time got a kick out of this little seven, eight-year-old kid that really just had this thirst for music and this thirst to learn more. And my cousins always fed me mixtapes of stuff that I should be listening to. And if I play my music collection on random, people think there's something wrong with me. <laughs> Every topic that we talk about on Playlist Wars, Gomez always says, I'm at a disadvantage because he knows that the topics that are coming in, Brian probably knows a lot about it. <laughs> That's why we get episodes like 80s wrestling themes because Gomez is a big movie and movie buff and wrestling buff and sports buff. So we kind of mixed it up. And I said, well, wrestlers have theme songs. So let's go with that. So it was a, that was more of a novelty episode for us. We do things like we have a Led Zeppelin episode. We have a Tom Petty episode, but we also just put out a Sheryl Crow episode featuring uh, Mark Trojanowski, the drummer from Sister Hazel. He came on the show, but he didn't want to talk about Sister Hazel. He wanted to talk about an artist that he's a fan of. The only criticism or critique that we get on the show is why aren't you doing more blank? Because somebody will say, well, I'm not a fan of this artist, but I love these episodes. So unfortunately, it is a bigger basket that we're kind of a big net that we're casting here. Mm -hmm. And we know some episodes may not resonate as much as others, but we're trying our best to give something that even if you're not a fan of the band or topic we're talking about, that there's something to take away from the discussions we have in each episode. Well, we like to cast a small net, Brian. <laughs> just rush. And today we're going to borrow from your format a little bit and come up with our own rush playlist war, but we're not going to make it easy for you. We're only going to do deep cuts. All right. Deep track. So we've got some rules here. Here are the rules. Ready? You know, the rules, but we should tell everybody <laughs> no singles, no radio hits, no concert staples. And that's it. The rest is up to you. So your definition of a concert staple, Brian, may differ from Jerry's, but we'll see how it goes. I will say this. I'm going to break one of the rules at one point tonight, <laughs> but, I, but I have an <laughs> argument for it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I'll put that out now. So we're going to choose five song playlists. Jerry, did you have something you wanted to say? I just wanted to say that we should probably discuss what even is considered a deep cut, especially for a band like Rush, who has super hardcore fans. What is a deep cut? Well, Brian and I went back and forth a little bit on Twitter, and we decided that any song that was played less than 200 times in concert <laughs> for Rush, believe it or not, is a deep cut. Wow, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was my criteria number one, was wow. less than 200 times. And wow, believe it or not, they played Tom Sawyer 201 times. So that just, <laughs> no, <it> come on. <laughs> <laughs> just to give you an idea, Jarrett, looking at setlist.fm, which I like to look at. Sure. The weapon was played 198 times. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't think they played the weapon much at all because we never saw them play it. So, right. So there you go. So anything less than the weapon qualifies. <laughs> you should have told me that beforehand. I like to leave you in the dark, Jer. That's right. Greater than or equal to the weapon. <laughs> so Brian, why don't we start with you? What's track one on your playlist? All right. My playlist, I'm actually going in reverse chronological order here. Okay. So the track that I'm starting with, I'm going from 2012's Clockwork Angels. And I'm going with BU2B. Oh, wow. 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 
According to Setlist FM, the song was performed live 82 times, all of which happened on the 2010-2011 Time Machine Tour. Never got played after that. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm a hard rock guy at heart. That's my true calling. That's my favorite genre. This could very well be one of the band's heaviest songs. And after that urethral opening at 50 seconds in, you get this Lifeson riff that's almost at a tool level of heavy. And Getty's bass line during the breakdown is absolutely sick. It's easily my favorite song on Clockwork. And I'm honestly shocked it didn't appear on the R40 tour because I think Clockwork Angels, you know, kind of being their swan song and all should have kind of been represented. And I felt like this is the strongest song to represent that album from because look at this point, they had been around for how many years to put out a song that had more heft than any hungry 20 year old rock band at the time. It easily made my list. Well, the interesting thing about that is there are so many songs on Clockwork Angels that are so heavy and so great that when they toured after that, there were so many to choose from, right, Jar? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. That was such a fantastic album. That they could take that song and just put it away. Right. Just shows you how great the rest of the record is, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great pick, Brian. Great pick. Jar, what's your number one? Well, my number one is also one of my favorite songs. And I'm at a disadvantage because I did not look up to see how many times <laughs> it was played live. But it's Anagram for Mongo from Presto. That's not going to be a lot. I'm going to look it up. You go ahead and talk about it. You're going to look it up right now. I love this song. Well, first of all, Presto, I think, is kind of a deep cut album, if you ask me. Maybe not as deep cut album as like Test for Echo. But definitely, it's usually toward the end, I think, the bottom of some people's best Rush albums. But for me, it's, it's just such a fantastic album. And Anagram for Mongo is a piece of genius lyric writing. Just absolute genius. Because of the semi-anagrams that are just littered in every single line of this song. Just being able to, to take an idea and to play it out so consistently in a song and have the song kind of even make sense if you squint really hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just a, such a fantastic song. And, and you don't really hear a lot of people say, oh yeah, Anagram from Mongo is, is like one of my top 10 songs. It hardly, it doesn't really pop up like that. Are you familiar with that track, Brian? Yes, I am. Uh, Presto is definitely one of those albums that I would not put it on my favorite part of their stuff but I don't hate it because I listened to your episode with Michael from Michael's record collection. And I think he put that as his sixth favorite. I like it obviously more than the covers EP they put out. Not that I don't like the covers EP, but I really felt like that was more of a fun little, I don't consider that a, a complete rush album in my opinion, because right. their original work is where it stands. And to me, I would probably put it a few steps lower, but I don't hate it. Mm -hmm. So it's not one that I listen to as much though. I don't grab that as often as I would grab a moving pictures or any of them at this, you know, I'm just trying to think of even clockwork that we were just talking about. Right. I've listened to that more. in I think the last two years than any other rush album, probably just because of the, the currency of it, it's, it feels like a modern album. And when I'm in the mood to listen to modern music, I could still get my rush fix via that album. That's right. And it's almost 10 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So Jay, you're ready for this? Oh yes. Anagram for Mongo was played zero times live. Oh, then that is a deep, deep cut, isn't it? That's a deep cut. You hit a home run there, Jer. All right, Steve, what's your first home run then? My first home run is from Caressive Steel. And if you want to stick to the deep cut definition, there aren't many songs from the early days to choose from. But this one definitely qualifies, and it's the Fountain of Lamneth. <laughs> this may be cheating just because I'm taking a 20-minute song and putting it as the first track of my playlist, but right. this song was, depending on who you ask, not played ever in concert. Six parts that are all just amazing. In the Valley is beautiful. 
Didax and Narpitz is the craziest thing ever put on a Rush album. The solo, like you mentioned, Jer, a couple of episodes ago, and No One at the Bridge is phenomenal. Panacea is another beautiful song. Bacchus Plateau is one of my favorite Rush. If you separated that and made it a Rush song, it would be one of my favorite Rush songs of all time. I just love that. Yeah. And The Fountain, it all builds to this epic conclusion, and Rush just tears you a new one at the end. It's, it's amazing. A lot of people don't like Caress of Steel, but I love it. That's my number one. And that's like the last prize at the claw machine. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's a super deep cut, man. What do you think, Brian? Well, I'll, I'll say this. If you don't have that song, you don't get 2112 a year later. True. Oh yeah, that's true. I feel like they were truly testing the waters with that. And I feel like a lot of people, and this is a pure opinion here. I apologize to any rush fans who I insult with this, but I feel like Caressa steel isn't, liked because of how much 2112 is liked and mm. loved and mm -hmm. admired by people so to me i feel like you could have had anything on caressa steel but because of what followed it it's always going to be light years ahead in in the world of rush fandom however i don't think you get the album that is 2112 if they didn't explore the longer, more epic things that they did on Caress the Steel. Because if you think back to the 74 self-titled album, they were more of kind of a Led Zeppelin-esque hard rock band. So you needed to get to 2112. You weren't going from the solo album to 2112 back to back. People would have tuned out immediately. So this was kind of a fly-by-night and Caress the Steel were kind of easing and kind of laying down the foundation for what would become the band that everyone loves these progressive icons. And I feel like it's an important album because of that. I think you're absolutely right. And the yeah. other thing is the band has come out and said that they don't like the album, which I think sours some rush fans on it. It doesn't sour me on it, but some rush fans jump on board with that. Yeah. You don't care about anyone's opinion, Steve. You know? <laughs> Not even Getty and Alex, even if they hate it, I love it. That's right. <laughs> Brian, what's your number two? All right. Well, I, I, again, I'm going in reverse chronological order here, so I'm probably pissing people off the most at the beginning, but I'm going <laughs> back to 2007 Snakes and Arrows. I understand that there are a lot of fans. We were talking about this, Steve, that kind of post signals. They're mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm out. Right. But there's a lot of great music over the decades, and Spindrift is definitely one of those songs to me. I am breaking a rule because it was technically released as a single, but it never charted. Oh, I'll give, I'll give you that. Never charted. That's definitely a deep cut. Yes. Yeah. But believe it or not, this isn't the song I'm breaking my rule on. So we'll, we'll <laughs> breaking all the rules tonight. I, this is this is because I'm not following my own on Playlist Wars. Anyway, according to Setlist FM again, this song was played 113 times, but the only times they were played were on the Snakes and Arrow tour. And there's something about this song. It's slower. It's haunting. And the riff is almost a brooding Lifeson riff here. This isn't your pyrotechnical rush song. And it stood out to me because this was them adapting to what was popular at the time. You still had your post grunge, not new metal, but you had your bands that were popular on the radio around this time where you're. Nickelback, your Hinder, your almost Bon Jovi-esque stuff. And here they come out with a song that is light years heavier than anything that was on the radio, but melodically could conceivably fit with the music that was popular at the time, but still maintained the Rush element. And I think the song is very powerful and criminally underrated. So my track two is Spindrift. Great pick, Brian. I love it. Jerry, you were going to say something? No. <laughs> There's nothing else I could add to that. Not much to add. All right. What's your number two, Jerry? My number two is also from Snakes and Arrows. I got nervous for a second there when you said Snakes and Arrows, but mine is The Way the Wind Blows. Ooh. Oh, good one. To me, The Way the Wind Blows is unlike any Rush song 
in 15 years before. It's such a strange song, the way it starts, the way the, the lyrics are, are presented, the way the acoustic guitar comes in, what the song is even about. It's a pretty heavy song, and on an eclectic album, it, to me, is one of the more eclectic songs on it. There's so many different styles within it, and Alex's, you know, bluesy guitar solo at the beginning that comes up again at the end, I just think it's, it's a song that's overlooked a lot by people when they talk about even the great songs that are on Snakes and Arrows. And I think an important point to make about that is because I talked about Spindrift, which was track five, and you're talking about The Way the Wind Blows, which is track seven. Right. I can't picture those two songs sequenced together. However, the main monkey business, the instrumental, I feel, is such a perfect tie-in between those two songs. Yes, they're not connected. Yes, they're separate songs. But at the album level, putting that instrumental in there was almost a palate cleanser to get you into the way the wind blows. And I think that was genius in terms of sequencing this album. And Jer, uh, we talked about every single Rush song so far on this podcast, and that is one of the best conversations I thought we had when we broke down the way the wind blows. Just the lyrics are just amazing. Yeah, it's definitely an amazing song. It's, it's terrific. Great pick, Jer. Thanks. What's your number two, Steve? My number two is from Grace Under Pressure. Is it a deep cut? I'll let you guys decide. Only released as a single in Japan, only played 47 times in concert, and only played on the Grace Under Pressure tour. It is After Image. The song has such a special meaning for me, especially after the passing of Neil a couple of years ago. Neil wrote it in memory of his friend Robbie Whalen, if you recall, Jer. The words, suddenly you were gone from all the lives you left your mark upon. Those words are just etched in my brain. And the song is very underrated, in my opinion. And Grace Under Pressure is an underrated album. Great track on Grace Under Pressure. That's my number two. Yeah, I wish they had busted that out for R40. That would have been a great surprise if they had done that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Your thoughts on that track, Brian? Uh, it's a fantastic tune. And again, Grace Under Pressure, I feel like, gets overlooked between albums that people, you think about, you had, I, I can go all the way back, 2112, Fairwood of Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, Moving Pictures, Signals. Signals is kind of where they embrace the 80s. Mm-hmm. Grace Under Pressure was where they really started to. And I feel like between Grace Under Pressure and Power Windows, if you were comparing this to ACDC, this would be the blow up your video era of the band because it was that 80s sound, a lot more reverb. The drums were a little bit more, again, he was playing analog drums on it, but a little bit more keyboards, a little bit more synth. It was a little bit of that slick 80s production. And they don't start to peel back on that until you get to Maybe roll the bones. I would say counterparts is where they really started to pull back, but a little bit they started pulling back on roll the bones. And I feel like that's why Grace Under Pressure gets overlooked was because it was kind of people weren't sure like where is Rush going right with these albums? Are they going to go all the way in pop? And I think they again they treaded the line perfectly, so they never quite got there. But I can understand why some people might lower this album, you know, if they were counting backwards. So, Brian, what's your number three track? Can't wait. All right. Here's where I'm going to get people yelling at me. <laughs> you keep saying that, but I love everything so far. <laughs> All right. Well, this song technically reached number one on the Billboard Hot Mainstream Rocks chart. So technically, it was a hit, but it was played 69 times total ever in their career, and all of which were on the Test for Echo tour. And I'm going with the title track, Test for Echo. Wow. That main riff, to me, is a licensed gem. And what Pert's doing during the chorus, it's like tribal and rhythmic on speed. So you put those two together, and if you listen to it in headphones, you're hearing this tribal nature, but he's doing it so fast that kind of the time changing and the progression and the pacing of this song is just perfect. And the song slides right into that mid-90s alternative grunge sound. 
but still maintaining the prog elements that make Rush who they are. So to be able to weave those two together, to me, was just so genius because they had their finger on the pulse of what music was. So even though they were pleasing the fans, because Test for Echo, they really distanced themselves from keyboards at this point. Synth, you're not getting a lot of that on this album. And that was what was speaking to the people of the 90s. Get rid of the gloss. We've got guys out there wearing flannel. Strip it down. Mm-hmm. Go basic. Rush could not go basic like the 74 self-titled album. So this was Rush going back to basics, but still maintaining the prog sound. And I felt like this was the best example of it on that album. Now, you said technically hit number one. What do you what do you mean? Well, no, it, it did hit number one. <laughs> So technically I was breaking the rules, <laughs> but here's the thing though. I think that qualifies as a deep cut. What do you think, Jerry? I mean, Oh yeah, absolutely. Test for echo. I would say driven and resist. I would not call them deep cuts. Everything right. else I think qualifies. What do you think? That's right. I agree. Yeah. And to me, the mainstream rock charts, that's not your hot 100. No. We're not talking, right. you know, in 1996, the hot 100 was filled with, Brian Setzer, the swing movement, the ska punk, you know, the mainstream rock charts, it was kind of buried a little bit. And the fact that the band dropped it in 97 and never played it again, to me, made it. You had to see that tour to get this song live. And I think that's, I'll say it, it was criminal because I would have loved to hear this song on the, all these songs are ones I would have loved to hear on the R40 tour. Right. And none of them were. So to me, that also speaks to if that was there and it wasn't meant to be, but that was kind of their, their bow, their victory lap. And if these songs didn't make that victory lap to me, they're deeper than what the band felt was their needs to play. Right. Yeah. And I just think every rush song after 1990 made it to number one on the mainstream rock chart just by default, because it's rush. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So I think it qualifies as a deep cut for me. Jer, what's your number three? My number three is from Hold Your Fire. It's the last song on Hold Your Fire, High Water. Wow. Unexpected. Is it really? For me, yeah. I would never have guessed that. I love the, the drums. Everything about this song is great. The drums are intricate, and I love the fact that Neil is using triggers and things like that in, in unexpected ways. I love Alex's guitar work, and the fact that it comes after Tai Shan, which is generally when I stop listening to the album. I know I've said it a, a million times. I'm not a big fan of Tai Shan, but I still go past it, and I still listen to High Water, but I think... Uh, Maybe, you know, for a lot of people that this last song kind of drops off the the hold your fire radar because of its placement on the album. I love the pick. What do you think, Brian? Well, talking about sequencing, like I did before when we were talking about snakes and arrows there, I think you're absolutely right. Had high water sat, maybe, I don't know, after time stand still, maybe. So I'm trying to think of where Mm -hmm. this song would. Yeah. I feel like. Tai Shan, if you know that for me, it's just there. I don't want to say I dislike it because I don't, but it would never make one of my CDs in, in kind of any form. <laughs> like right. if I'm listening to the album in its entirety, I, I will include it as part of that experience, but I would never put that on a, a, a list of just rush songs that I was going to have on shuffle. Right. So you're absolutely right. It is kind of where you you start to even mentally check out from the album and high water being after that. It's almost like a bonus track that was hidden at the back of a CD after silence. Right. And you're rewarded with this really cool song after waiting, you know, you know, 15 minutes of silence only on this album. It's four minutes and 17 seconds of music. Is it really four minutes and 17 seconds? Are you correct there? According to what I'm looking at right now, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you have this in your brain? <laughs> that would have been amazing. I pulled up the track listing just because I was talking about the sequencing, and I, did, I just kind of wanted to look at it before I before I brought it up. If I had that kind of knowledge... I, oh, I was going to say, I'm very impressed if you know how long the song is. 
And Jar, that was never played live. So another true deep cut. Never played live. Look at that. Look at that. What's your number three, Steve-O? My number three is from Signals. Never released as a single. Only played live five times, Jar. Do you know what song I'm talking about? I do know what song you're talking about. It seems like it should have been a concert staple after all those epic performances on the last tour. It is losing it. Maybe I was swayed by the performances of Ben Mink and Jonathan Dinklage tearing up that solo live. Yep. We saw them do it twice. I just saw it on my list of deep cuts, and I said, I have to put this in my top five. It's got to be losing it. And now that you and I are getting older, we can relate to the subject matter too, right? Even when I was 17, I related (laughs) to the subject matter for some reason. I'm not sure why. I've always had bad knees. I think that was why. But see, personally, I I was thinking about putting it on my list but it's such a fan favorite that I didn't think it would qualify as deep cut. Do you know what I mean? People love this song so much. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Whereas some of the other songs, I think people, some people forget about them, but I don't think many people forget about losing it. Maybe I'm wrong. I hate to criticize your pick, Steve. Brian, you're the youngster in the group. Do you relate to losing it first of all? (laughs) And secondly, is it a deep cut? I definitely consider it a deep cut given the number of times it was played live. When we go to my next track, it's also from this album. So the timing is perfect, like like as if we planned it, which we didn't. And I went with a different song, and my fear is what Jerry was saying, that this song is, I think a lot of people really like this song, and I'm wondering if this one is is technically a deep cut, because I wouldn't call it a fan favorite, but it's definitely not a song that I feel got its just due. and putting it in set list numbers, it was played, I think 18 times the amount of times losing it was played, but only 92. <laughs> so again, under a hundred times played. Yeah. I, I, I like losing it in the scope of the album. I think it's a fantastic song. I feel like signals is one of the most underrated popular albums they have. Okay. If, so I know it's an oxymoron there. Jumbo right. shrimp. I get it. But when, <laughs> when you compare signals, which is a staple album of theirs and you put it up against moving pictures, a farewell to Kings in 2112, I'm not sure. I know a lot of people that would put it above those three, but it's still, when you talk about signals, everyone's like, I love that album. So it definitely fits in that, but it's underrated. I feel like and there's a lot of gems from that, that after the tour, because they had this back catalog that they needed to include what songs paid the price, the most recent. And that is Mm. kind of something that happens all the way through their live album progression for the next 20 or next 30 years. All right. Well, this segues perfectly into your track four, Brian, let's hear it. All right. From signals. I'm going with chemistry. Oh, love that one. Played 92 times only on the Signals Tour. And that's the thing. Everybody I talk to, I love Chemistry. What a great song. So to me, it's certainly not a hated song, but I don't know if it would be a deep cut because everyone enjoys it so much to the point where, just to put into perspective, none of my cuts are from moving pictures, period. And I'm saying that as a spoiler alert now because I don't feel I could say anything from moving pictures was a deep cut considering they did an entire tour around playing the album in its entirety. So to me, that's a body of work that is in every rush fans lexicon and it's there. Hey, you don't know who Rush is? Listen to this album, right? This is everyone's introduction to rush. It was my introduction to rush because of my age. But when I've introduced people to rush, I've said here. So to me, none of those could constitute deep, even if they're, not played as much, but they played the whole album in its entirety. So back to chemistry. Mm-hmm. Lifeson's guitar work in this song against the keyboards and synth was pure fire. The riff is almost this tapping signature he's doing. And then you talk about the closing solo in that tune. I mean, I'm shocked this song never resurfaced at all right. after 1983. So there was no, like, 
put that into perspective. Yeah. 30 something years of touring and they never thought to revisit this gem. So it's, I, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. Well, it just shows how many great songs they have. Amen. You shave it right off and never play it again. And the solo at the beginning of that song is amazing. Right. All of it is. And, but that's the, the thing. Everyone loves this song so much. Is it a deep cut? That's where my fear, because I, I'm a Rush fan, but I don't host a podcast about it. You guys know mm -hmm. people that, you know, live and breathe Rush. And that is their thing where my music has always been dive as deep as I can into as many bands as I can. Mm. So I go deep all the time. I always love deep cuts, but my fear being on this episode is possibly insulting a diehard with a cut that they feel should be a staple. And I'm a hack that doesn't know what I'm talking about. You know, honestly, Brian, I think you'd be the best person to judge what's a deep cut and what isn't because people like me and Jerry love every Rush song. So nothing's a deep cut to me or Jerry, except maybe Ty Shan, right? <laughs> but to you, you've got a better perspective on it. So I say, if you say it's a deep cut, it's a deep cut. All right. So then my Tom Sawyer pick next is going to be great. <laughs> That's right. That I would argue with you about. That I would argue with you about. That's a medium cut. <laughs> Jerry, what's your number four? My number four is from Grace Under Pressure, and it's Red Lenses. Oh, nice one. I see red. Because again, this song is an unusual song, even for an unusual album like Grace Under Pressure, right? It's just like funky, I think. It's supposed to be funky. It's just about God knows what, right? It's just a, it's just a weird, weird song. It's got that breakdown at the end where, you know, there's like a lot of reverb happening and Getty's just popping the crap out of his bass. And, you know, it's about the color of red. I don't even know what the song is about, right? We <laughs> talked about red lenses and we had no idea what the song is about. It might be about, you know, the red scare. It could be about Jaron Mao's little red book. I have the slightest idea what the song is about. But again, it's one of those songs that you don't hear bandied about as being top 10 Rush songs, even though it's a fantastic song that's just kind of buried in Grace Under Pressure. And it starts out with just Getty's vocals. I think the only Rush song that starts out that way. Right. Which is very unique, too. Your thoughts, Brian, on Red Lenses? If Getty Lee were to ever join a funk band, <laughs> this would be his audition song. That's right. I mean, really, he I feel like he carries this song. And, and to me, and I don't mean vocally, I mean the instrument. And when you're the bassist to Neil and Lifeson, the bass could get lost in that fold. You're thinking of the talent here, but man, he just slays it on this one. Yeah, and it's, absolutely. it's so being a bass player myself, it's one where I find myself when I listen to this song, honing in on what he's doing and going, what is he like? How is he doing this? How is he playing this? Where is his mind at to put that right. into this song? So I absolutely love it. I, I think it's great. And the interplay with the bass and the drums during the little breakdown part where Alex is just having a smoke off on the side or whatever. It's just one of those things you don't really hear that often on, on a Rush song. Yeah, and definitely not on Grace Under Pressure as well. I think like if, as a whole, this would be their album's most, I don't want to use the word jammy, maybe experimental yeah. mm -hmm. track because it's not, I would not say this goes hard into Prague here. So I'm trying not to, because sometimes if you think complicated, you, you want to go with the word Prague, but I don't feel that this fits that mold as much as some of the other songs. So I'm going to go with experimental on that. That works. So Jared, according to setlist.fm, Red Lenses was played 233 times. Can you believe that? You're kidding me. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> I find that hard, to, very hard to believe. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how accurate setlist.fm is. We've discussed this before, Brian. It's kind of like the Wikipedia of setlist websites, but I think it's pretty close to accurate. Well, had, had I known the criteria that you set down, I wouldn't have picked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but it was also played up through 19, uh, 1988. So they played it on a second tour because it was mm -hmm. on the Hold Your Fire tour as well. And again, not off the top of my head. That is thanks to Setlist <laughs> FM. But the song lasted longer than a tour mm. where the songs I picked 
pretty much seem relegated mm-hmm. to that tour, which means set it and forget it where this song, they were like, well, no, this is, there's still something here, but it eventually fell off. Right. Uh, shamefully. Well, not shamefully, but sucks that it did. Sadly. Sadly. There you go. Steve, what do you got next? My next one is from counterparts. Now, in my opinion, this song should have been a single. It should have been a concert staple. It was only played 41 times live, and it is Between Sun and Moon. This song was co-written by Pai Dubois, who co-wrote Tom Sawyer and Force 10. To me, Alex's guitar on this just sounds incredible. We talked about this song on the Counterparts episode Alex mentioned that he thought it sounded Stones-like, and it does. And Getty's vocals are just amazing. All the layering they do with the vocals and the ooh-ah, yes, to yes, it's just, <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, one of my favorites off Counterparts, Cold Fire is another one I thought of, but I went with this one, Between Sun and Moon. That's my number four. I believe I chose this, Steve, as one of my favorite Life's in Solos, too. You did, and it's a great solo. It is a fantastic Solo and very unusual kind of solo, even for Alex. Yeah, yeah. Brian, your thoughts on this one? It's my second favorite song on the album. Second only to Animate. And even Animate, when you look at the amount of times they played it live, it's uh, I want to go, it's not one of my picks, but Animate was 216. (laughs) So just using that 200 cutoff, I was like, oh man, because I feel like they're both they're, they're amazing songs that should have had a longer life. And this is one of those albums that I feel like just moving on from it really as an album fell off of their staples throughout the rest of their touring, which to me makes the album start to finish deep, deep. But that's only from the live experience, because to me, I feel like animate wasn't a massive hit for them, but I feel like it it should be in people's dialogue. If they were to put out a career spanning greatest hits album, meaning like I know they have several different editions covering years, but if they were to do a two CD set of their greatest hits, I could see animate being on it. So this brings us to number five, Brian, we haven't repeated anything yet. Let's see if that continues. What's your number five. All right, I'm going back to 1977's A Farewell to Kings, which was very hard for me to use this album because, hell, Primus is touring a cover of this album right now. So deep on this album, yes. And if you put it in perspective of 2112, Farewell to Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, Moving Pictures, I do feel this song is deeper. It was performed 153 times all of which were on the Farewell to Kings tour except one time, kind of like the last song we talked about, it was played on the Permanent Waves tour, and I'm going with Cinderella Man. Great pick. Great pick. I love the interplay between the acoustic and electric portions of this song. I'm going to use Ramble On by Led Zeppelin as a comparison here not comparing the two songs but ramble on is one of my favorite songs of all time ever recorded and i feel like the way ramble on was written was the way they wrote cinderella man as a rush song so in no way shape or form am i insinuating that they were trying to play a ramble on song but that interplay of acoustic to heavy the back and forth nature of it i think is amazing getty's bass throughout the song layered with the acoustic guitar it's almost funky but he brings this element of depth to the song because if he was just following the chords it would almost become too radio friendly if that makes Mm -hmm. sense where what he was doing was so advanced for what was happening this was a simplified guitar part i feel like in the scope of alex's body of work and it's, you don't hear a ton of acoustic guitars on every Rush album. When they do it, I feel they do it well. And this is a great example of it. And then this is the very 70s part of the song that I love. But the guitar solo, the panning, left to right. right. When you listen to that song on headphones, it's a trip. I mean, you're following. It's almost making your body sway with the way he's playing because you're, 
you're leaning into where the guitar is going and it kind of brings you on this journey out of it into the rest of the song. And it's definitely one of my favorite headphone listens like up there with 2112 because of the way this, this guitar solo was produced in this song. So that would be my fifth deep cut here. Yeah, I totally agree. Cinderella <laughs> man also uh, lyrics by Getty Lee too. So that kind of makes it a deep cut too. I love Cinderella Man so much, I just could not wrap my head around making it a deep cut. Even though it did qualify according to our criteria, I just couldn't call it a deep cut. I love that song. I love the pick. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Jerry, what's your fifth and final choice? Well, Steve, my last choice is from the criminally overlooked album, Vapor Trails. Ooh. The stars look down. Oh, wow. This is a heavy, heavy, heavy song on a heavy album. It's about heavy things. It's just everything about this song is heavy. I've, I've heard from some people who say they don't really like it because they don't think that the lyrics really sit well with the music, almost as if Getty's like just like talking over the music as opposed to you know trying to find some place to sing in it. But I think if that criticism is valid at all, I think it adds to the helter-skelter kind of feeling of this song to begin with because it is such a desperate kind of song because we have Neil who's, if we're, if we're taking it from Neil's point of view like I always do, a very rational person who, you know, isn't one to be like, oh, things happen for a reason or blah 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 or anything like that. Just standing under a canopy of stars and saying, you know, what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> and then the stars just look down unblinking and unthinking and he has no answers to anything that he's searching for and so i that that makes it one of the heaviest songs musically and lyrically of just almost any rush song to me a lot of people don't appreciate vapor trails probably because of the production issues from when it first came out that was literally what i was going to ask you considering they did the remix of it do you feel that that remix gave the song the life that it truly deserves to me, the first album was more of the production, the brick walling, the, the over compression. I feel like if they got it right the first time, I this album would be a lot higher in people's top lists because oh, absolutely. this is actually, I don't want to say one of my favorites because come on now, but yeah, of the modern stuff they've done, I'd say anything after, after 1990, it's definitely up towards the top. Yeah. And I think had it, come out the way it originally should have been mixed i feel that the album would be more popular in people's uh looking back and i'd be curious what your thoughts are on that being someone who who loves this album so much well it happened to me i mean when it came out it didn't really make a, a mark on me saw them in concert a few times on that tour but it wasn't until we discussed it for the podcast that i went back and listened to the remixed version and i was like what idiot am i what kind of an idiot am i to just dismiss and not go back to this amazing album for so long. And now I listen to it a lot. So I'm glad I went back. And this song, Jarrett was never played live. So you hit another home run. That's oh, a deep that. cut. Look at that. Wow. How many does that make for me that have never been played live? Three. I think it was three out of five. That's pretty good. Wow. Pretty good. So my number five, Jer, Yep. is from Presto. Now I wanted to put an album ender as the final song on my playlist because rush was famous for having amazing album enders, but most of their album enders were not deep cuts. So mm -hmm. the one I came up with was available light. Not a single never played live. And it's a shame. How great would it have been to see Getty pull out a grand piano and just <laughs> seriously and just start playing in the middle of the stage and play this song right. his vocals on this song are so incredible it would have been great as i always say jer with the clockwork angel string ensemble too this song would have been so amazing and yeah. presto has so many options i definitely wanted to get a presto song in there hand over fist was another one i was thinking about but i wanted to end it with something red mag tide yeah red tide's another one i wanted to end it with something majestic so i went with available light your thoughts you know, I think if uh, they had 
uh, grand piano on stage, Alex would have gotten on top of it. But <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer, fabulous Baker Boys style. <laughs> While Getty was singing, I think that would have been an excellent thing to see. I think it's the perfect bookend to Show Don't Tell to kick off the album. I can't picture any other song on this album closing this album. And if you do, I think you take away from it. And I think it's the perfect bookend. And I think it's a great way to close the list, too. So, yeah, absolutely. Nice pick. It was on my short list. It just goes to show you how great a band Rush is that the three of us pick 15 different songs and they're all amazing. That's right. I'll be very curious to hear what people think when they listen, where the deep, where they, because mm-hmm. a deep cut is a subjective thing we're talking about here. Yeah. There are people that for one hit wonder bands, every other song is a deep cut to them. But then there are <laughs> right. people that are Uber fans of that band that get annoyed Yeah, because, Oh, you're playing these songs again from the album of the one hit wonder because that is kind of the way they're trying to push people towards and to the casual fan. Yeah. Those are all deep cuts, but to the super fan, they're not. So with a band like rush people that love every one of their albums, conceivably I could have pulled out anything from the covers EP feedback and said, this is a deep cut. Why? Because I, I don't know if there's many people that would put that above any rush album of original material. And I'd be very curious if they were to move it above, what album would that be? So with that logic, my brain would think that most people would say that's their least favorite Rush album, just based on the fact that it's not original material. Yeah. So any one of those covers conceivably in my mind was an easy deep cut, but I didn't want to go with the cover because I felt like that was too easy of, a, of a, an excuse because why would you pick a cover song for Rush? Yeah. Yeah. Like an example on Playlist Wars, we did a U2 episode. Not the most massive U2 fan. Our guest was. I made the mistake of picking their cover of Christmas Baby, Please Come Home from a very special Christmas. And my buddy damn near lost his mind. 30 years I've known the guy. And it became like a months long debate where U2 fans were ripping me to shreds for picking such a stupid cut of my 10 favorite. Right. But being not a massive fan, to me, it made perfect sense. Subjective. Mm. So I'll be very curious to see where people align all of these picks in their deep cut arsenal. Well, I think what we should do is what you do on your podcast, Brian. We should ask our listeners to vote at therushcast at gmail.com. Let us know whether you like Brian's list, my list, or Jerry's list best, and we'll see who wins. That's right. Love it. Love it. So, Brian, what do we have to look forward to? Coming up soon on Playlist Wars. What wars do you have for us? All right. We got a lot of stuff coming up this year. We have been very, very, very busy. A lot of great shows coming up. We are doing episodes on G-Love and Special Sauce. Wow. Wow. G-Love is coming on the show, and we're going to playlist one of his albums, The Juice, where Gomez, myself, and G each picked four songs off that album that we felt best represented his body of work. So imagine the look on our faces when we picked a song that he didn't think was the top four. <laughs> and when he would pick a song and we went, that's certainly not top four, man. So you have to look the artist in the eye made for a really fun conversation, really in depth. Lots of great stories. We're doing episodes on Green Day, hard rock cover songs, heart, slipknot, social distortion, songs of 1982, Foo Fighters, Dropkick Murphys, 80s Power Ballads, and 2000s movie soundtracks. Wow. As well as I hope to say we have a Rush episode coming up with you gentlemen sometime in the near future. We would be so honored, Brian, if you invited us. That would be great. Consider it an invite extended. Thank you so much. And I think for your Hard Rock Covers episode, you got to pull something off feedback and put it on your list. (laughs) Hard Rock Covers? is damn near impossible because there are thousands upon thousands of picks. And if you don't include this band, what are you doing? If you don't include that band, what are you doing? If you, so it, I'll tell you right now, episodes like that are a mind F because (laughs) when you're doing a band catalog, it's hard enough, but when you're doing every band 
in a genres catalog and you try to want to represent in different ways, you're pissing yourself off more times than you're happy with the pick you made. Right. Well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. We really appreciate it. This was indeed a lot of fun and we'll be listening. Thank you so much. And if anybody out there that's listening wants to check it out, playlistwarspodcast.com. We would appreciate it. We would love to hear what you think about some of the episodes and to both of you gentlemen, thank you so much for allowing me to come on and talk rush with you for an hour. This has been absolutely fantastic. So Jared, Brian used my word there. Fantastic. It was. I'm so surprised that none of us repeated songs. I thought, sure, you were going to pick the Fountain of Lameth. When I put that on my list, I'm like, well, Jerry's going to pick this too. Yeah, it sounded like you thought you knew what I was going to, to pick. Were there other songs you thought I was going to pick other than that one? I thought you would pick Losing It, and I thought maybe Available Light. Available Light was definitely on my list, but I cut it at the very last minute. And I love Brian's picks too. They were all great. I don't, I don't think yeah. uh, there was any criticism at all. I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I just um curious to see what our listeners think is a deep cut. I'm sure we'll get lots of lists. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only quibble I have, like I mentioned with Brian's list is Cinderella man is a deep cut just because I love that song so much. Right. I can't even fathom that being a deep cut. Cause it's just not in my brain that way, you know? Right. So anyway, check out playlist wars. It's a great podcast. You can find them anywhere you get your podcast. And you can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, TheRushcast at gmail.com. Let him know which playlist you like best. Me, Jerry, or Brian. TheRushcast at gmail.com. Bass intro and outro, that's Lex as usual. And Jerry, I hope you have a quote to wrap this up nicely for us. I do, and it's from one of my deep cuts, The Way the Wind Blows. Ooh, nice. We can only go the way the wind blows. We can only bow to the here and now or be broken down blow by blow. Thanks, Jared. Take it easy. All right, see ya.